I think we sit there and talk about how the generations are changing. And I'm sure it's the same conversation that they had when I first walked into the role room and they were like, oh, look at this kid. It, it, it's the same conversation in that I was different from them. Now the generations that are coming on are different from me. I think that looking at getting good quality officers that are going to stay for five to 10 years and utilizing them would actually benefit us. And maybe are we losing people because we push this 25 year thing? We say, oh, you got to come and be a cop for 25 years. What if we said, no, you can be a cop for five or 10 years and get great life experience, but then still have some sort of retirement that you can move on and do something else. I don't think the angle of what was the traditional police officer, the person holding the line, so to speak, is what you know motivates people. And it's funny because on two hands, we'll talk about things. We'll say that the public is asking for officers to be more involved in mental health and have more of an outreach aspect. And then on the other hand, we'll say that the people we're looking to hire and this new generation don't want to be that person standing on the line. Those two intersect. So how do we identify how those points come together? And, and that's tough. And I, we need to go back to the way we recruit, the way we test. What are we testing to? We're testing to, depending on which model you use, standards that were developed 20 years ago for an effective police officer. And I'm pretty confident things have changed in 20 years, but if we're still using that measuring stick, we use that as our guide. And then we hire someone and go, well, they're not meeting the needs of the, of the community today. Well, of course not. So how do we go about saying, this is what a police officer needs to be in 2023, or better yet, this is what we think a police officer needs to be in 2025 and 2026. And how do we attract those people and how do we measure them and test them and ensure that they're quality candidates. My guest today is Chief John String. He is currently the Chief of Police at Narberth Borough in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. He was recommended to me by Nicole Beckett of the Minor Center as someone who can speak about the changing mindset in policing. Indeed, he understands public safety in full context. He is interested in a dynamic model of community needs and the importance of recognizing rapidly changing issues. Our conversation is wide-ranging, so check out the show notes for more detail. I begin by asking Chief String how he got involved in policing. So let's begin. It's interesting because I'll get asked that question from time to time, and I always joke that I'm in the coffee shop, and I don't have that great you know, my father was a cop or somebody in my family was a police officer or, or something that I always grew up with. I actually went to school for aviation. I had a, a passion for aviation and realized post-college that the career field wasn't as great as I expected it to be. And a friend of mine had gone to the police academy and he recommended, maybe you should try that. And I had done some volunteer work. I was a volunteer firefighter. I'd worked in the ambulances and the EMT. So I had some experience in public service and I had generated satisfaction out of that. So I looked at it as maybe that is the natural step. It was more happenstance that I ended up just going to the police academy and finding the job. So it was very much by happenstance, but I'm fortunate to have had the experiences that I've gotten through all those places, through my first job, through Lower Marion and now in Marvin. Narbeth, it's interesting to me how often I hear, not just in policing, but in other fields with public service, that people 
fall into it. But I have to think that there must be a heart there or you wouldn't stay, that somewhere you were bitten by the bug of this is making a difference or I can do something in this field. Definitely. And it's one of those things I think that people will, within the first couple of years, figure out if it's for them. And those that don't enjoy it will quickly find their way out to their own benefit because there are a lot of detractors with the career, the shift work and the nature of the job. It's difficult and you have to be able to find those rewards when they're there and find that satisfaction. And it definitely was. And like I said, I think I had a little bit of it through EMS and the fire service, and it was just able to fulfill all that through law enforcement. Yeah. And the background in aviation makes me think that your mind works in a particular way with specifications. You may have been comfortable in an environment where that becomes really critical when the rubber meets the road. It does. I will say probably it took a little bit of adjusting because in aviation, we have procedures and checklists. If something happens, if the engine fails, you're going to do this checklist all the way down and there's no, you don't skip, you don't avoid. And law enforcement definitely has its moments where it's like that, but also there is a large majority where there is no checklist and you have to adapt. So it definitely took a little bit. It was a new interest for me to be able to expand my experience in that like unknown and being able to adapt and try new things and operate in the quote unquote gray area. I want to ask you now, what does professional growth mean to you personally? I think there's multifacets to it. And a lot of times I think the initial target for professional growth is education and training, which is critical. As the profession changes, as laws change, we need to make sure that we're staying up to date. But there's also the need to grow professionally in that servant mode. And I think that's where things become a little bit more abstract. How are we identifying how we as police officers should be growing and developing to serve the needs of the community? It's it's simple in that some people will call them at one, we're going to go answer the call and we're going to hopefully do the best we can to solve their needs. But what about, we look at mental health, we look at different aspects that police are getting involved in now and how do we grow in those roles? And I think that's something that hasn't been as well developed in law enforcement we need to continue to push down that path so that we're as police officers, as a department, and as a community, all growing together. What are the areas that we've talked about is that the field of policing requires sort of a shift in focus. And I want to get at what that shift really looks like in your mind. Where are the boundaries that need to be pushed for future policing? I think it comes down to identifying what the community wants as far as their police department. Each, you can break it down to a granular level to what an individual block might need from their police department. And obviously that's burdensome to try to meet the expectations at that level. But just to use an example, we need to go out and identify what our community needs for policing. And I think that policing tends to be reactive. Now we talk about being proactive and we talk about being proactive in our patrols and go out and try to prevent crime, either through deterrence or detection, but I think we need to be proactive in identifying what our community needs. And we're seeing that now when it comes into police officers being more than just crime fighters, being 
the conduit to mental health, to being the educators, to being the support. We expect police officers now to, if there's a water leak that we're going to be able to, if not fix it, identify who needs to get there to fix it. So it's that shift of being that resource for the community more than just the crime fighter. Yeah. I have worked over the years in municipalities where I hear the story of the officer. It might come from the police department or it may come from the other side where they're saying, they don't do that. Or the police will say, we don't do that. And it tends to be a, a kind of a point of tension. What I hear you saying, and I'd like to just dig in a little deeper, is that it's a change in mindset and that the way you find out the needs perhaps is just through interaction, that that's Absolutely. actually the path. From my experience, it has been just sitting there talking to people and it's the interaction of if it's coffee with a cop or like a civic meeting or even through emails and telephone calls, it's having that conduit with the community to be able to identify what those needs are. And just to pick up on the point you said about like, we don't do that, I think that we need to break down some of that because that was policing decades ago where, and there was, I think, I don't want to say that it was a correct rationale for it, but there definitely was a rationale for we need our police to be these in these silos that this is their sole job. They're not getting involved in anything else because crime deterrence and avoidance is the number one job. And I think that's tending the shift now, but we, we need to do a better job identifying what that is. I often joke that we suffer from the fact that there's no competition in law enforcement. If you look at the corporate world, if you had an agency that wasn't meeting the need, if you had a corporation that wasn't meeting the needs of its customers, its customers are going to go somewhere else in law enforcement. We need to be proactively going out and identifying what I know people don't like the customer service term, but identifying what our residents as customers need from us. And we're not being forced to do it through a competitor. We need to motivate ourselves to go out there and say, Hey, what do you need as a community? And then how can we adapt to fit that role? And that comes with some back and forth. And you talked about having that communication. It also comes with setting the expectations because there definitely are times where community members will come in and say, this is what I expect. And we have to explain to them that's not feasible, either through resources, funding or legal. There's times where, you know, people have unreasonable expectations and having that conduit there allows us to maybe say, listen, this isn't going to work, but let's identify another way to address it. Yeah. Very high level of communication required to get at really where that public safety is. I can think of a few examples and I want to just as I think they do bring attention to the shifting role. I worked in a community where they were doing health inspections on units that were rental units. And so there were some situations where the inspector was saying, this is a very scary situation that we're going into. Can we have some police with us? Because we're the I, I don't remember the exact reasons, but they had reasons. It wasn't just a general sense. It was feeling that, that could be an unsafe situation. So that, that in that case, the customer is really inside the municipality. It's the actual carrying out. And it is related to safety. Like you can link that directly to safety. I could think of another interview I did recently for the podcast. And this actually goes back because I remember interviewing in their police department. And the situation was these big, box stores were coming into town 
Walmart. <laughs> and suddenly they were having issues where they wanted the municipal police to be their police people. Yeah. And so that communication was about this is public safety, but it extends beyond where we're going to be able to provide. Absolutely. I mean, you, it's limited resources no matter what. So like it goes back to the health department seeking assistance, but we have to have the officers available to go out and do that. And we're fortunate in the municipal world that it isn't too overburdening, but to talk to some places, Philadelphia is obviously the easy example where there's officers maybe sitting on 15, 20, 30 calls back. They don't have the time. There's legitimately no availability to go meet those needs. So that's where we need that full picture of this is what the expectation is. This is how we're going to meet it. Yeah. So the skills of a chief really do require a very high level of, of communication skills to be able to sit down and have sometimes difficult conversations or explain how that role of guiding public safety in the community might look like. It's very easy, though, to have unrealistic expectations for the police. Yes. And I imagine that one of the areas may be with elected officials. I'm hopeful that where you can find good partnerships with the municipal manager, you might be able to neutralize an ever-evolving expectation of what it should be. Yeah, and I believe that they're just passing on the expectations of their constituents. So if it goes back to that community, that expectation is there. And if it isn't reasonable, instead of it goes back to we don't do that, maybe we don't do that exact thing, but is there somebody else that can? Is it a public works issue? Is it community health? Or is there something part of the way that we can do to help mitigate this. Yeah. So I think it's, again, that taking that more holistic approach to, even if it isn't a police matter, instead of just saying, not us, let's find out who it is. Right. I love this idea that uh, your role will be more of a partnership role. It's not necessarily that we're over here in our box and we do what's over in our area, but we're working across. And I use this term, taking it out of the black box. And I, in so much of government, we do things behind these walls. And, and it's hard to in government because when things get exposed, you become vulnerable to attack. So our, our second nature is just to just hold things close to the vest. But today, and this is where the shift in profession, professional growth is so critical, there is this growing awareness that the more transparent you can be the better ease you're going to have and engagement. If you could talk a little bit about the importance of that transparency and to the extent that that's holding some accountability as well for the department. It is. And it's a difficult line because it's new. We've had body cameras for, you know, the better part of a decade effectively. And I think we're still working with the best matter or best options for releasing video and when we should release video. And I think it becomes state by state, county by county with the district attorneys that are concerned about eventual prosecutions and whether or not this could a jury, things like that. And so you have pressures from there, meet their expectations. You have the expectations of the community, you know, taking it out of the box and saying, we need to sit down together and discuss this and say, here's what our expectation is that we're going to release a video, how does that affect prosecution and talk to the DA and talk with the elected officials and say, listen, we want to release the video, but we also need a little bit of time. It can't be six hours from now. So again, preparing for that and saying we are going to be transparent, 
this is the mode that is going to happen in and setting that out. And I think you, you would benefit if there were to be this event where something happens and you have this expectation, if you can say, hey, here's our policy. We are going to review the video. We're going to talk to the district attorney. And in 24 hours, the video will be released. That kind of takes some of the pressure off and it sets that level expectation. Because if you sit there and say, hey, not yet, that expectation is just going to keep building. And I think that we've learned from law enforcement that there are bad videos out there. You can go on YouTube and watch them. LAPD has a fantastic community relations channel where they put pretty much all their body camera critical incident videos up there. And some of them weren't the best. But I think that the public appreciates the fact that the department's saying, here's an incident and this is where we're going to improve. And any negative effects that may come from that probably are smaller than the negative effects of saying, hey, we're not going to release this. So I yeah. think that's one thing that we as a professional are starting to learn. Like sometimes it's better to, for lack of a better term, air your dirty laundry and say, we're going to improve from this. What I just heard you explain was something I never thought about, which is when you say we're not going to release the video right away, in the public's mind, it's easy to say, aha, they're going to edit it. Yep. What I heard you say just now is that we need to be able to respond fully, which means we need to know what our attorney is going is advising us. We need to make sure that we don't have the elected officials saying one thing and the chief saying another, or we need to be clear about our policy so that we can evaluate exactly where this incident falls. Is that yes. what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's you need to delineate what those restrictions are. Because again, it goes back to, if you say, we're not going to release it because we have to figure some things out. Then that's going to seed doubt in people's minds. So I think we need to say, these are the steps that we're going to take. We're going to clear it with the district attorney. We're going to clear it with the elected officials. We may have to block out victims' faces, do whatever sort of redaction. And once that process is done, our target's 24 hours or 48 hours, whatever it is. But I think that number is less important in the term of time versus the important factor is in the beginning, this is what it's going to be. I think, again, setting that expectation. Mm -hmm. And this all comes into, intersects with this importance of trust in local government. And trust has been one of the issues in policing that has gone through rehabilitation. We, we have still a wide range of police policing operations and I think it must be difficult for police departments who have taken time to to think through their policies. We had on Chief David Steffens, who talked about looking at his use of force policy after the Black Lives Matter movement raised issues around use of force. I have seen this body cam change this the way it's used chiefs being much more open about sharing what's happening in interaction so that the public understands this is what took place so that trust factor when you think about in in today's landscape what is it that you think is important for the police to really maintain or rebuild a sense of trust? Obviously, it's important. I think the first step is recognizing that there is that lack of trust. And I think 
it's difficult at times because you already, you have to accept that things have, wrongs have been done. And I think law enforcement as a profession, it's difficult to failure to grasp it. If we fail, horrible things are going to be catastrophes. So I think that kind of breeds this zero fail mindset. And then going back and saying, hey, listen, this could have been done better. Where you have been reluctant to do that, I think, based on that mindset. So I think it's about opening up and saying, hey, listen, we didn't hit the mark on this one. We were close, but we didn't hit the mark, and this is how we're going to improve. And if you take that mindset out to the community and ask them, what do you think? Where do you think that we could have done better? Where do you think that we can improve our service? I think that goes a long way to building trust. I've heard community leaders that have come out and say, having the opportunity to speak to the police department, be it the chief or the investigator, whoever's doing it and express their concerns means a lot to them. So taking those opportunities and it's important when we have those events, but it's important, just as important, maybe more important beforehand, because we're going to build that trust. And hopefully if I always say that if something catastrophic happens and we have to call somebody and we have a concern over trust, the phone call can't be, Hey, my name is John, by the way, I'm the chief of police. It has to be, hey, this is John, and we've talked numerous times before, and you know me. So I think it's about building that relationship before the trust is going to come. And I, I think there's an expectation, maybe it's unreasonable, it would be unreasonable on the police side that, you know, the trust is just a light switch and we can tell them, hey, listen, we're good. And it's also difficult because you have agencies that do a great job that don't have those issues. We're seeing this, we talk about the national effects of an incident. There's one horrible incident somewhere in the country and police across the country are painted with the same brush. So I think we need to realize that that is the reasonable response to people. They're going to see something and then question police. And I think we need to be open to that questioning. And again, that's going to build that trust as well. What are some of the things happening in Narbuth right now that you're doing to build trust since you're a, a new chief, relatively new chief there and thinking about these things? Again, reaching out to the community. We don't have body cameras yet. So one of the things that we did was had a community meeting and we talked about body cameras. And there's over that 10-year period, there's been this shift where, um, I'm not exactly sure, but it's gone from demands from the community for body cameras and police departments being reluctant to get them to now this police departments are asking for them and the community is reluctant to have them. Well, I was just at a a perp conference in DC and it was probably a hundred, 150 chiefs. And they asked across the room, what chief thinks that they could go back to their agency and take away their body cameras and no one would complain and no one raised their hand down across the board. Everyone said our officers want it. So it's been this shift now of going to the community and explaining we want body cameras and here's why we want them. And I think there's privacy concerns now that probably were overshadowed by concerns for police action. So I think now that is more of the focus. Like where are you reporting? What are you doing with reporting? So going out and being open with the community and explaining that there's laws in place. Could we take for granted law enforcement that, well, there's actually two, which stipulates what I have to do with this video and citizens don't know that. So we need to take the time to put that out. Maybe it's, it's definitely sharing our policies. Like here's our policy when we're going to record, what our expectations of our officers are. And then here's what we're going to do with the video. And here's, yeah, if we record in your house, here's what's going to happen. And it's meeting those people and addressing their needs. 
And I found that, unfortunately, a lot of people are reluctant to call. And I don't, again, I'm not sure why, but it's going out and if it's meeting them on the street or over a cup of coffee or in one of these community meetings where they do happen to come, it's probing them almost. What do you think about this? I get so much more than, hi, what's going on? And you really don't get a response. But if I say, hey, what do you think about body cameras? Then I get this flood of concerns or whatever the case may be. One of the things that fascinates me, and this has to do with the police and community safety study, which I've shared with you, is, is I'm working hard at getting in place, but it's the perspective. So let's say, in my mind, it, it, we've changed the conversation. We've moved it forward because it used to be two people or more saying, this is what happened. This everyone That's where the whole conversation stopped was what really happened. So now we have camera footage and the conversation is, now let's hear from your perspective what was going on in this moment. So it just brings the conversation forward that people can begin to say more about what it was that they were experiencing and that what was important about the interaction which is, to me, a, a much greater learning experience than getting stuck on what actually happened. Yes. And on the law enforcement side, there's definitely like a learning curve with this because the video doesn't tell the whole truth. The video provides additional perspectives. We need to look at concerns of the officer as they, what information did they have when they arrived on the call? There's unfortunate instance where police get the wrong information from the dispatcher that someone is armed and realistically they are. We need to make sure that, again, this goes back to that communication aspect of setting the expectation. The video is just a one more tool that we're using, but we're still going to talk to the officer. We're going to interview the witnesses and we're going to get all this information before we make any decision. Yeah. And I guess there's a lot of the antecedents that, that we just don't know yet. When the camera goes on, there's oftentimes things that have happened prior to that, which again, still remains oftentimes in, in, in a sort of a quagmire and it can be very difficult to ferret out if there's, particularly if there's a history there with the police and the, and the persons of, of interest in the incident. So there's a lot, there's a lot ahead in, in terms of, of what is going to happen with technology, but anything else in technology that you see happening in, in policing that interests you and that you think might prove to be beneficial overall for the community? There's a lot. Technology is great and we need to utilize as much of the benefits of technology as we can, but we need to recognize the burdens that it presents. I hear people say that technology is this great tool for law enforcement, and that's the end of the sentence. And it's almost like that 30,000 foot view, but you haven't taken a step down to see the actual effects of it. Technology has done wonderful things for us being able to increase prosecutions. We have video now, we can get cell phone data, we can license plate cameras, all those things. But all that comes at a resource cost for our officers. We go back to earlier in the discussion, we talked about, we're not doing that. Are we telling our residents we're not doing that because we don't have time? Because flashback 20 years ago, you went to a call, you took the report and you wrote it down or maybe typed it in the computer and that was the end of it. Now we ask our officers to go to a call, 
and then they review their body camera. They are checking crime sharing networks. They're checking license plate cameras. They're checking ring cameras. Let's say we have a burglary and we're asking our officers to go check security cameras from three or four different ring door cams. That might be three or four hours of time that they're examining that information. So if we look at technologies as great panacea, but we don't recognize the burden that's putting on our officers to identify ways that we can provide more resources to it, I think it's going to overwhelm us quickly if it hasn't already. And that doesn't even get into, we talk about cloud storage, we talk about cost. I was recently at a training and it was somewhere from Las Vegas and they discussed the Harvest 91 festival shooting where it cost them, I think around a million dollars, they said, just for the right to know releases for all the videos, for them to process everything and release it all. How do we counteract that added cost and some of those concerns? So I think that we need to look at, as we're identifying all these technologies, they're getting funneled in and they're great, but we also need to look at, okay, how are we paying for? What resources do we need to manage it? I can see agencies starting to go outside and hiring non-sworn officers or non-sworn members to go in and, okay, you're going to review the ring door camera footage because I can't have my officer tied to the desk for three hours just watching video. Yeah. So it's a double-edged sword. Right. So, yeah, this is a great challenge. The technology is on the rise, but if it meets that tipping point, it could go over to the dark side if it's not if it's not intentional in terms of the way it's going to be used. You and I just talked about one of those possible dark sides of just the it, it being used in the wrong way with the wrong intention. More like a, like a, I think the term was virtual supervisor, which would be a terrible. I don't think that I would want to work for a force that had a camera as a supervisor. It, the idea is that you can, you have this data there. Now, what are you doing with it? And I guess maybe, and it's up for debate in my mind, is there a, a liability issue if you have this and you don't check it? So you have video of an officer that's out there not meeting expectations. He's out there cursing at residents or she fails to provide effective service, whatever the case may be. What's the expectation on the department to root that out? And some of the things that are out there, I guess they scroll through the video and identify harsh language or raise elevated tones, threatening manner, stuff like that. And then it triggers a review. I believe it's a good, it was with good intention, but then it becomes in the question. Who's the one that's doing that? We all have, I don't know, is it AI or whatever you want to call it that's actually making these triggers and identifying this officer's behavior is inappropriate. We can't lose the place of the supervisor on the scene with the officer evaluating the officers. Yeah. I think this is a, would be a great subject for a roundtable debate that would be discussed within the profession and then also shared large, more largely with the public. I think everyone needs to think about what this means, particularly in communities that are really working on partnerships with businesses. Cameras are becoming a part of our life. I also know that I think there's been three podcast episodes that had technology in the title. And when I look at the analytics, they're like at the top because I think people are interested in this subject. And I, I wonder if this has to do with the generations coming up or I think there is a more broadly, 
just a curiosity about technology and government, policing being one of those areas where it, it, I guess it's the potential. Right now, there's just a huge amount of potential. People who are in the field maybe want to know how they can apply it in government for those purposes or partner with governments. There may be others that are just, I think, managers who are just interested in improving and chiefs interested in improving the way they're doing things through technology. Yeah, it's definitely like you hear the stories and the one recently was a stolen car and they were able to put the tag into the license plate camera system and that's proactively out there searching all the tags to go by the cameras and it triggered and send an alert to the officers that were in the area and they stopped the car and arrested the people. So it's, that is a yeah. great, who wouldn't want that? Right. But then how are we managing it? How are we affording it? Those sort of things are the, the other side of the coin. Yeah. So many big questions. I am interested to know whether you're seeing anything with the generations coming up into policing right now, any comments specific or general about and if you think that there are some ways in which younger professionals might think about this as a career. It's definitely changing. I guess the biggest impact that I've seen, and I think it's just because it's foremost in everyone's minds, is hiring. We don't see people that are interested in the career because of the benefits, because of the pension, because of the health care. They're not looking at that. Again, go back even 10, 15 years ago during recruiting, you could go and say, hey, listen, after 25 years, you can have a pension. And that was great. Now it's not unusual to go and people say, what's a pension? And then you try to explain it to them and they say, I don't want to do this for 25 years. They are, and I don't mean to say they're short-sighted and they're not thinking about their future, but they don't want to. They want to look for a job that they're going to do for two or three years and they want to get the benefit out of it. I think we sit there and talk about how the generations are changing. And I'm sure it's the same conversation that they had when I first walked into the role room and they were like, oh, look at this kid. It, it, it's the same conversation in that I was different from them. Now the generations that are coming on are different from me. And I think we need to identify instead of saying, oh man, they're different. We need to identify and say, how do we cultivate that? Retirement being one of the things like maybe we need to look at, do we have you know, there's self-monitoring pensions or investments or 457, where instead of having a pension where you got to stay 20 years or 12, the best, where we look at like a military model where you can do a shorter period of time and still collect some sort of benefit from it. Mm. I think that looking at getting good quality officers that are going to stay for five to 10 years and utilizing them would actually benefit us. And maybe are we losing people because we push this 25 year thing? We say, oh, you got to come and be a cop for 25 years. What if we said, no, you can be a cop for five or 10 years and get great life experience, but then still have some sort of retirement that you can move on and do something else. Look at trying to play up the, I don't think the angle of what was the traditional police officer, the person holding the line, so to speak, is what you know motivates people. And it's funny because on two hands, we'll talk about things, we'll say that the public is asking for officers to be more involved in mental health and have more of an outreach aspect. And then on the other hand, we'll sit there and say that the people we're looking to hire and this new generation don't want to be that person standing on the line. It's almost those two intersect. So how do we 
identify how those points come together. And, and that's tough. And I, we need to go back to the way we recruit, the way we test. What are we testing to? We're testing to, depending on which model you use, standards that were developed 20 years ago for an effective police officer. And I'm pretty confident things have changed in 20 years, but if we're still using that measuring stick, we use that as our guide. And then we hire someone and go, they're not meeting the needs of the Hopkins community today. Of course not. So how do we go about saying, this is what a police officer needs to be in 2023, or better yet, this is what we think a police officer needs to be in 2025 and 2026. And how do we attract those people and how do we measure them and test them and ensure that they're quality candidates? Yeah. There's a couple really key <laughs> points you were making there. But first, I have to ask you, do you think the unions will sit down and talk about what you just presented there? Are those things that the unions are aware maybe need to be discussed at the table? I believe so. I think that they recognize just probably to a greater degree than management, if you want to have it as the union management perspective, the unions to a greater degree see the need to hire more people because they're the ones that are suffering from the lack of support, the lack of resources, because we can't put enough officers on the street. When you look at Philadelphia with, I forget how many, over a thousand officers are down to say to them, listen, we need to fill those ranks. We need to look at how we can do it. And I don't think that we get a lot into not wanting to lower the bar and college is one of those things where I'll take different sides on. I don't think that college credit's a good measuring stick for law enforcement officers. And I think we have to look at who we're trying to compete and who we're trying to recruit in the law enforcement. And if you have a candidate there and they haven't gone to college, they can go to the trades and make just as much money, if not maybe more. And they still have the retirement fund there that we talked, maybe not even as interesting them as much now, but let's say it's still there. So I think that washes out between us and the trades, but they don't need college. So how are we going to compete against that? Why? I don't know if I had someone walked in to my office today and said, Hey, listen, I don't have any college. I need a job because I need to support a family. I can either try to go to college and become a police officer, or I can try to go to the trades and get hired and get money right away. I wouldn't have it in my heart to tell them, oh no, put off providing for your family so you can go to college for a couple of years and try to be a police officer. So I think we need to recognize that maybe those things aren't a requirement. I often joke that a perfect example of education isn't necessarily the end all be all when it comes to being a police officer, albeit important, but you can take somebody with a PhD and you can take a bartender and who's going to deescalate better. I'm willing to bet the bartender is going to be a better deescalator than the person with a PhD. Now that's not to say education is worthless, but it's just not the end all be all again. And I think that we could look at providing better resources for officers once they come into law enforcement to provide them with tools to get education. Do we create partnerships with community colleges and allow them to take online classes and at low or no cost? Look at those ways. If education is that important, let's fund it for them. <laughs> I love this conversation. The professional development piece is, has always interested me. There was a conversation with Ken Batten, who is manager, a municipal manager, and he was telling me once about bringing together all the different pieces that are involved, people that are involved with public safety 
and really getting to know almost, I'm going to use the word portfolio of competencies. And so that they knew when emergencies, because you never know what kind of emergency is going to happen in these days. It's really good if you might, there might be somebody that's like yourself, really good with aviation that could have very specific knowledge into a, a, an airplane accident or something else that's required to all these different nature of whether you went to college or went to trade school, it's all important to the community. And going back to what makes a difference to some of these younger professionals, I think that the recognition and they like the technology and the transparency because they want the community to know what they're doing. And they also want to see a clear line of sight between the way they're spending their time and what you're trying to achieve in that safety, public safety. I think public safety has been this more sort of mushy term and it's so critical and yet it gets muddy very easily. And so when someone like yourself comes in and begins to really shape and define what it is within a community, which is where you started out, like how that community understands the need for safety, it's invigorating. And when you can complement that by saying, these aren't all Ottoman Ottomans is, I'm not saying that right. They're not all like just widgets. These police officers are all human beings coming with very different experiences, very different natures. And so it's a, it's a more complex environment than maybe we, we want to think right away in terms of those human interactions and what they, and what the, they can each bring to a situation. It's very, I think it, to me, as we think about the future, what I would love to see is police officers maybe even change their titles. I don't know. But to get out of this routine of just this is what we do and you can't tell one from the other, it's, uh, it's a much more blended profession of different that's long-winded. I'll probably cut that out of the whole part. I don't know what prompted that. I think that there's something there as far as identifying the benefits. And when I was at a larger agency, there was definitely the value of having Officer A, who she was really good at X, Y, and Z. And then I had Officer B, who was really good at one, two, three, and being able to deploy those resources. So it's good to have that as well. But then you get into the the spontaneous nature of law enforcement, where you might not have time to move that officer over to where that emergency is. And we have to have a baseline competency across the board. And that's where we struggle a lot because we focus on the high liability things. We focus on our use of force. We focus on search and seizure. We focus on pursuits, things that are going to basically land us in trouble. And we don't have the time, the resources, whatever else to focus on all those other things, mental health, community relations. And I don't know what the answer is as far as I've seen studies where they say 20% of your time to be effective should be in training and development to try to accomplish everything that we expect of police officers, but it's just not possible. We talked about the recruiting dilemma now where we don't have enough officers to staff our departments, no less increase the training commitment. Yeah. So do you look at other opportunities, like you're saying, that, I mean, this full public service thing, do we have, unfortunately, EMS and fire are going through similar reductions in staffing, but 
maybe if we look at it from like a bigger picture of you're saying public safety is mushy, but maybe if we define it a little bit better and then focus on, okay, this is how we can support public safety and identify those people as they come into the pipeline as, okay, maybe you would be good for EMS, you would be good for fire, you'd be good for police, you would be good for community relations and kind of filtered out that way. Yeah. Yeah. And transferable, you know, what is it that's transferable? Because you talked about, you never know where an incident's going to arise and you can't get everybody there, but there, you could know, again, in this sort of portfolio, somebody who is within the police department that can also serve as a fire officer or something. I'm not sure how that would all work again, going back to the union, but. <laughs> no, it does. We have police officers that are paramedics and those are the ones where you hear it and you're calling them saying, hey, start heading that way because it's a medical emergency that they need to be at. Yeah, so, trying to, but that's not quantified very well. Yeah. Happenstance, like currently. Yeah. These are all some tricky areas. <clears throat> One question, just helping agencies that are maybe struggling to emerge from old ways of doing things. And I almost feel like the answer is just too obvious. It's like it happens at the top. There has to be some recognition, but <clears throat> if there's anything more that you can say, I, I think there is that sort of widening gap between those who are really pushing the boundaries forward and those who are just stuck in very old models. And you're right. The, the simplistic answer is just toss away the, this is how we've always done it idea and try mm -hmm. new things. I think that, again, that goes back to that zero failure mindset of, we're reluctant to try things in law enforcement because we don't want to fail. What if we do, as simple as we're buying a new car, we're trying an electric car. What if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work, we have to go buy another car. But I think inherently in law enforcement, we have this, but we can't fail. We have to be right the first time. So it's changing that mindset a little bit would be good. I think that better development of relationships with elected officials. And understanding like, hey, we're going to try this and here's the expectation that, you know, or make sure there is an unreasonable expectation that it's going to be perfect. Yeah. Isn't a mark of leadership, John, that chiefs would try to keep politics out of the police department? Yes, I believe. And what's funny, having conversations surrounding COVID, that was one that was big. And mm -hmm. it... I think it boils down to those conversations that I had with our officers. It's not about our beliefs. It's not about the science, whatever you want to bring into this. It's about what the law is because we had municipalities that were banning restaurants. We had forced outdoor dining, whatever the case may be. We had people that were calling because there was too many people in a business. So it was a about setting a good, reasonable standard and expectation of our officers and how they're going to respond to it and ensuring to them that political beliefs are outside of this. this is what our expectations are going to be. And we don't, I don't think normally like to put in those. I always like to think about it. We operate in between the guardrails and we put our officers out there and we say, listen, here are the guardrails. As long as you're between them, we're doing good. And if we brush up against them, we're going to talk about it. I don't like defining those guardrails very narrow because it takes away discretion and you simply can't plan for everything. But those are instances where I think we really define that narrow path of this is what we're going to do. If we get a call because mm -hmm. there's more than five people in an establishment, 
this is our response. And it's to protect them, it's to protect everyone because there was such a political influence there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is a lot of tough questions here. And I'm going to give you one more. So with the situation, there, there's so many social services related issues appearing on the horizon, more that we're hearing about it, not so much that they haven't always been present, but mental health concerns in the community and also homelessness, which can have some intersections there in those communities where there is a, a problem, an issue, a concern on the part of the residents that the homeless are creating barriers to whether it's tourism or just residents, safety, and so on and so forth. We see this in the headlines. And I think about what it is that the police are directed to do in these situations. And I know it's different in every situation, but I read an article recently, and this I think was Phoenix, where they explained basically the government, which I thought they did a good job of trying to explain, there's only so many things that we can do. Like we're bound by protocol. We cannot, for instance, just move people when we don't have any place to put them. We have to find a place to put them first. So there's that happening somewhere. And then the I'm thinking about the role of the police and how you see this playing out. Because it must be to your best interest as police that there's somebody else that's really handling the social services part of this. And your role would be limited to what? What is it that is it? It's really, again, complex. I think in this instance, it's more of a mitigation than a solution, unfortunately. And it's just because the solution isn't available to us. We, we deal with homelessness and let's say we encounter somebody and they are homeless if they do elect to ask for help. And that's the, the key thing that sometimes I don't think people recognize that some people don't want help. So if they do ask for help, we have a limited number of resources where we can call in county services and say, hey, do you have something for them? There are agencies now that will come out for homelessness, but they'll provide a tent and a toothbrush and some sanitary stuff for them. And that's it, toiletries. And basically, here you go, here's some resources. We'll try to get you something soon. Even at that point, now we've escalated a past law enforcement to the social services, but they don't have anything that's available either. Back to your point of what is the police involvement, we get calls and it's almost a, a mitigation of, hey, what can we do for you currently? Are you in distress? Do you need medical aid? Do you need countless times officers will buy meals and provide water for people? But realistically, that's it, because even if they want the help, it might not be available. So I think it's a larger issue of identifying where that funding is coming from. How are we transporting them there? What is, where are we transporting to? Yeah, I, uh, I think that this is another example of good data where good data could be very important because if, if the police are going to be effective, whatever they're charged to do, which I guess is different depending on the situation. They need to have data about what's going on, where the social services have sort of their set of data. These are the people that have been in certain facilities or, or already have a bed someplace, and, but just aren't going to it. All of these like different sets of data need to come together or be accessible, which brings me to the point of putting somebody that is connected to the social services network with, to work directly with police departments. And do you see that as happening 
maybe more being more accepted in the future? I definitely think it's going to be more accepted. You see it occurring now. And I think we talked about law enforcement. We want to see something be successful before we incorporate it. And I think that what's out there will be successful. And in a couple of years, you're going to see more of it. Obviously, you have the hurdles of funding, staffing. We're bringing these people in. When are they working? Monday through Friday, 8 to 4.30. Generally, we don't have these encounters during that time. Are we trying to stay up at 24 hours? Because now that's a huge funding hurdle. So I think we have to work through those. I know some counties are looking at trying to deploy something at a county level just because it's a little bit more effective. But you're right. It has to be somebody that has the connections to those resources. And we can talk about it more in mental health. We need somebody that has the resources to call a facility and be able to get a bed that has access to the case history, that knows what these people need for treatment. Right now, like mental health is a good example. We call the local uh, hospital and say, hey, listen, do you have a bed? No, we don't. And we can take them to the ER and they have to be accepted there, but generally they'll sit there for hours, days until a facility is available to them. So it's about having the right connections, but also that resources on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. Very important issue. I'm going to steal a quote and I wish I could remember exactly who said it because I'd like to attribute it to them, but it's right now we're getting effective at building a bigger door so that we can get more people through, but the house is the same size. We are cramming people through, but there's no room for them. So we need to look at what's the next step. Like how do we make space for all these needs? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very interested in the design of future government. And I think public safety is just right at the center of it. And I think it's just, uh, it's why it's so important to talk to everybody who is really leading in this field. I think just before I, I let you go, I want to, first of all, ask you if there's anything that, that we didn't talk about today that you'd really like to get into. I may have missed one of the things. I know we talked about so many great things last time when we were preparing. I don't want to miss anything. No, the one thing that we had talked about previously and we brushed up against it in the conversation was the hub. In Montgomery County, we've had great success with these hub models where we're bringing in other resources outside law enforcement. It's county mental health. It's contracted mental health. It's the school district, adult services, probation, parole bringing all these people together on a biweekly basis and presenting information, presenting cases, because we basically, it's the analogy of breaking down silos instead of having all these people operating independently. What the people that created this found was that you could have people receiving resources from one agency, calling the police for resources, calling somebody else, and we weren't aware. And it goes back to the police might not be the best provider of whatever service you need, the hub allows us to present this and say, I have a resident who has these needs, who can provide. And what we're seeing is all these agencies jumping in and saying, we can provide this, we can do this. And it's just more comprehensive. It's, um, I like it into like the medical facility or medical field where you get multiple doctors that are, have different specialties that get together to solve the problem for the patient. It's the same thing. We have all these people with all these specialties that can come together and provide resources that help solve the resident's problem. It's great. And I think that increasing the, not only the availability of it, like deploying it in other locations, but also 
right now it's basically self-funded. All the agencies are allowing their representatives to go and look at the way that we could develop funding for this to provide benefits to not only we're presenting a problem, but we're presenting like a funding availability for that person then to receive resources elsewhere. Because I think we do run into the issue of I'm the person that could handle that, but I don't have the resource right now. So we could somehow attach funding to that so that we can further on the process. I think it'd be a great benefit. Yeah. Human services has always been a very networked sector, but I think that there's just room for us to improve on that. And I'm very excited to hear about that program. And I think that really goes, it goes a long ways to just building a more networked government so yes. that we can access services and partner or share as we need to be more agile, I think we could say. It's interesting, you, in addition to your work as police chief, are also helping departments with accreditation. I don't know if you want to say something about that. I think that's important, too, because you build your perspective of the policing field just by interacting with so many departments. But maybe you could say a word about that. Yeah, it's great. Even before, on like a business end, just being an accreditation manager with my department and going out and seeing other agencies is a huge benefit. And if you go back to that information sharing, it could definitely be enhanced as far as departments sharing their successes and accreditation is one way, and it's a byproduct of it, but as assessors go around and look at other agencies, inevitably you take something back or you provide an idea, hey, I see you're doing this. I had this same thing and this is what I did and found it very successful. So it turned into this information sharing network as well as creating that we talked earlier about that bar of ensuring that a department's meeting a standard and ensuring that it's providing effective service to the community. And I think this goes towards that professional development that we talked about earlier. If you look at other fields, attorneys, doctors, they have accreditation or they have this sort of uh, expectation that gets measured. And I think that's something that we definitely need in law enforcement. Yes, I, it is. I think just a, an important area to look at because it is shaping very much the shaping departments. And so that can be, I think, a real point of influence. I, I, I'm wondering, maybe just in, in closing, I, I've been asking guests this, and I don't know if you've had some thought, given some thought to it, but I'm thinking about invent invitations as a way to imagining the future. So by Thinking about invitations, we are tapping into what we want to see in the future and what we want to be a part of. So I'm asking you now, what a dream invitation might look like to you? If you one was delivered to you, what would that be? What kind of invitation would attract you? And when you accept the invitation, what is it that you would be doing having responded to it? I think it would be having input in developing, almost like we talked about that development and police and law enforcement shift. Like, what is the future? I think we have yet to define what policing even is in 2023. We are, it's a trial and error. Being able to sit down and say, listen, this is what we think policing should be, not only now, but what our expectation is in the future and find a way that needs to be a constant conversation. Um, look back, I 
I think it's still considered the high point that currently is the president's 21st century report on policing, which was 2015. We're talking eight years out, five years pre George Floyd. That now is still the model. I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice in law enforcement if we don't sit there and say things have changed and what's our response to it. Now, the six pillars that are in the report are outstanding and they should be implemented, but what else are we missing? What else could be done? And I think that those conversations need to be had at multiple levels. That was a national level. I think there's benefits to having it at a state level, at a county level even. Taking an opportunity to join a group that basically looks at it almost like a think tank model. Okay, here is a recruiting issue. How do we address it and provide suggestions and reports? And I think that would be something that would really interest me and in going out and trying to seek those answers, but utilizing the resources from all of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any areas, if you were to be in this group and let's say you were all accomplished and serious about the topic at hand. Are there any areas of major disagreement that you think are out there or would come up in in those discussions about the future? Everything. Color. Everything, color, really. Uh, like type of uniforms. No, but that's the simple things. You're definitely going to get into, it goes back to that. Um, that's not what we do or that's not how we do it. And I think that if this were to evolve into something, it has to be with the understanding that each community is a little bit different. So if we sit there and say, we, as a group, recommend that, I don't know, I'm going to make something up. Officers check on their elderly residents once a month. And agencies say, I can't do that. I don't have the research. So I think there has to be the understanding and taking them with reasonableness. So mm -hmm. I think that would be the biggest thing. but. Again, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we get this thing and it has recommendations and they don't fit for you, that's that one that doesn't fit. What else is available? What other benefits could you get from it? Yeah. That really interests me that you're saying that at the very top of leadership, if we were to put together in the room, that they would still be talking about that's not what we do. Because it almost seems to me like that central conversation around who are we? What is our profession about? I agree with you, like getting that clear, then you can adapt to the community from there. But it seems like that central message is not that it has to be the same for everybody, but it strikes me that there might not be actually agreement about that. Maybe it's, yeah, I guess. I, I think you hit the key point that it shouldn't be the same for everybody. The way that municipality A has police department shouldn't be the way that municipality B does because effectively I say at my police department we need to be the best Narbeth police department we sh we're not going to be the best police department to count we're going to be the best Narbeth that we can be and I think it looks at what does our community what resources do we have available and taking all that into consideration we do the best job that we can so I think that we get hung up sometimes on uh, again go back to drones like somebody says you should have a drone we can't afford one I think that's where the disagreements come in sometimes where it's okay, well, shut the door on that and taking the time to listen and evaluate and say, okay, that's not for me, but what is. Mm -hmm. So there's this, just that factor of what's realistic, 
what's relevant. Yeah, um, and funding becomes an but yeah. you can't have any conversation in law enforcement without having the funding conversation that goes along with it. And unfortunately, there's municipalities that extra funding is not a possibility. Some are, it wasn't long ago that we were hearing layoffs and everything else in law enforcement, which is somewhat unheard of. How do we, I don't think that we can let that be the restriction. We have to have the conversation of what do we need to do? And then hopefully you talked about having that whole model. Do we incorporate legislatures? Do we incorporate other officials to come in and say, okay, this is what our goal is. How do we seek the funding for it? And I think that would go a long way versus a lot of what we do is piecemeal. Why need body cameras? So let me go out and seek funding for body cameras. If we, as a group, a collective, as law enforcement say, this is an initiative that we want and how do we go about funding it? Recruitment being a good example, like statewide, how do we go about funding a recruitment program to ensure that all our agencies are staffed? Like those things, I think we'd have more success. Yeah. Well, I certainly place a strong, in my mind, preference for more conversations between police and community for two reasons. One is for what you brought today to this conversation about how important it is for police to be in that conversation with community in terms of what they need, but also for the community to understand the constraints in which the police operate, whether it's resources, reality of, and and also just that baseline. You talked about sort of baseline kinds of, of skills. So there's, I think that those conversations could really go a long ways. And I love this idea though, if I were to move to a new community, uh, it could be a whole different feel from what I have in the community I'm in now. And so it, it would be important for me to perhaps say there's going to be an opportunity for me to get to know what the policing is like in this community. Like everyone should be able to have access to that understanding so that they can feel comfortable and safe. And yeah. Absolutely. And good, I, your homeless example, somebody calls because they see somebody's homeless. We need to follow up and, you know, let the person know, the caller know, we checked on them, they're fine. There's no resources available. Like, yeah. It goes back to, again, I think we in law enforcement could do a better job with providing that communication, like that close the loop where someone calls and it's a complaint or an issue that we can't address, or maybe it's illegal. Let's say abandoned vehicles. Somebody calls in and says, my there's a vehicle abandoned on my street. Officer goes and checks it. It's not abandoned. It meets the requirements, registered, inspected. Okay. They just leave. The resident feels that their need's been unmet, but the officer says it's not a problem. If we don't close that loop, if we don't go back to the resident and explain it to them and take that to a larger scale with everything, as much as we can at least, I think that we would be more successful and back to building trust there. Yeah. I know I have gone over our time, but I, I really I do appreciate you sharing all your views on this. And there is just a lot here to think about just the fact that the future of policing, it's not set. It's really evolving. It is really an area. Of, and just the degree of what I want to say, the, just the number of issues that are happening. It's a rapidly evolving environment. So your interactions with people, it's just so critical to, to stay abreast of that. And that must just be a huge challenge. Yes. 
I wish you the best in all that you're pursuing now and your very busy life. And I look forward to some future conversations, John. You've just been, you've enlightened me in so many ways in our discussion so far. I enjoy the conversation. It's always good. Thought-provoking. Yeah. Okay. You take care. See you. You too. Thank you.